0: What
1: Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's November 16, 2006, in Catalonia, Spain. Volker Eckert is parked outside a football stadium waiting for night to fall. He has the body of 20-year-old Milena Petrova in his truck, and he's waiting until it's dark so he can dump her body. Nearby, a technician is installing a CCTV camera on the wall of a factory. By chance, the camera scans the stadium car park and captures footage of Eckert's truck, including the owner's logo printed on the side. The next day, Melena's body is found. Spanish police inspect the neighboring camera footage and discover the lone parked truck. They trace the truck back to Germany and immediately try to track Eckert down for questioning, either as a potential witness or a criminal. When police catch up to the truck driver, they find him in Köln, Germany. They probe Eckert about Milena, but he denies having any knowledge or connection to her or her murder. Wary, officers scour the man's truck, where they find a disturbing collection.
2: There were Polaroid photographs of other victims. There were trophies in the lorry. It was perfectly obvious that this was Eckert's lair. Almost every serial killer in one form or another has what's come to be known as a lair. And in his case, it was the cab of his lorry.
1: The photographs show ghastly images. In one, a dead woman has a noose around her neck. Some photos have handwritten notes detailing murders. Officers also find snippets of hair. That day, police arrest 47-year-old Volker Eckert bringing an end to a 32-year career of murder
3: that spanned five European countries. Back then, he was just beginning his brutal career. I was incredibly lucky. The police had no idea just how many
1: victims the long-distance truck driver may have claimed.
2: Volker Eckert was a relentless, predatory serial killer preying on vulnerable women.
1: This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Volker Eckert. Volker Eckert was born in the small East German town of Plauen in 1959. Psychiatrist Norbert Nadopiel, who analyzed him after his arrest, says Eckert confessed that he had a fascination with women's hair from an early age.
4: When he was nine years old, he started to be fond of the doll of his sister, a doll which had long hair And he put them in front of him on his bed. He was feeling sexual arousal, plunging his hands into the hair of this, this doll.
1: Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley
4: classifies this type of
5: paraphilia. We describe him as a trichophiliac. This is somebody who gains sexual pleasure from, from hair, essentially. Um, and I think he would have been aware of the fact that this was something odd, this was something out of the ordinary. And I think that would have created a bit of a sense of shame within him. So he was aware that this was something that he had to keep hidden.
1: By the time Eckert was 12 or 13, however, he began to move on from artificial hair and show interest in real human hair. At school, he would stare lustfully at the hair of the girl who sat in front of him in class. He felt compelled to touch it and tormented that he couldn't. The desire plagued him, so much so that sometimes he'd forget to eat. It occurred to Eckert that the only way he could touch a girl's hair at his leisure would be to subdue her. Gradually, the ideal of violence began to percolate. He began to practice strangling his sister's doll before stroking its hair. As Eckert entered adolescence, his parents' marriage started to fall apart.
4: The separation for him was influential because the father had to leave the house, and he said, I swore to myself that will never happen to me and I will not marry because I don't want to work all the time and then be thrown out of the house. Um, And he took sides with his father after that. But he continued to live with his mother.
1: After his parents split, Eckert's anger intensified and he acted impulsively.
5: He went off the rails, and, and one incident involved taking his parents' car and, and going off on, on a bit of a joyride. Um, and then he, he returned home, and he was in a lot of trouble for that. In
1: 1974, aged just 14, Eckert committed his first murder. On May 7th, Eckert visited his classmate and neighbor, Sylvia Unterdurfel who had long, beautiful locks of hair. Realizing her parents weren't home, Eckert took the opportunity to live the fantasy he'd dreamed of and as he'd so often rehearsed.
4: And then he thought, uh, well, I have to do it with a real girl. And he, of course, like like many fetishists, they realize they won't do it voluntarily with me. So I have to force them. Eckert couldn't hold back anymore.
1: He had to act, says criminologist Stephen Harbert.
6: First, this girl only played a role in his fantasy as a victim. But the point came when this fantasy wasn't enough anymore. He wanted to do it. He wanted
2: to
4: stroke her and then kill her. He started right away after she let him in, closed the door, and he started getting at her throat and started to strangle her. And when she was unconscious, he plunged his hands into her hair.
1: Once Eckert was satisfied, he tried to disguise the
5: murder. So what he did is attach the the end of the clothesline to a door handle to make it look as if she'd killed herself.
1: Local journalist Rainer Meyer continues the story.
6: Just as her mother was getting home from work, she walked in to find her dead daughter. Of course, like with every unnatural death, the East German investigation authorities began their work and came to the conclusion that it was a suicide. And for 32 years, right up until Volker Eckert's confession, her parents had lived with the belief that their daughter had taken her own life.
1: Though it seemed unlikely that Sylvia had hanged herself from a doorknob, the police closed the case.
6: At the end, Eckert managed to set up the scene so cleverly that the police fell into his trap. Eckert had gotten
1: away with murder and would continue to kill. After getting away with his first murder in 1974 at the age of 14, Volker Eckert went on a killing rampage. Alexander Schmidgall, who later became Eckert's defense lawyer, said he developed a very familiar M.O.
7: They always started with uh, strangling and uh, that the woman got unconscious, that he felt the power. Um he always uh, spoke about uh, to see uh, the consciousness go away from the eyes. And he uh, this was this was his attraction, yeah, to have control and to have power over another um, person, and um, to have the fetish with his uh, with the female hair, with long female hair
1: after strangling his victims to death, Eckert would take Polaroid photos of their bodies. He would then cut off their hair to store in little plastic bags and keep articles of clothing as trophies. Eckert targeted people who he believed were far less likely to be reported missing immediately, if at
5: all. So his first murder was quite opportunistic um, and it was somebody that he knew. And I think he realized that, that his luck was on his side at that time. And in later years, he targeted sex workers because I think there was an awareness there that these people often go off the radar for, for long periods of time. They're a vulnerable group of people who will get into your lorry willingly. So he had access, he had opportunity, and he really honed his, his killing routine.
1: In 1978, 18-year-old Eckert was jailed for a year. He had been convicted of sexual assault after he was caught attempting to strangle a woman, but that did not deter him. Between 1979 and 1987, he continued the slaughter.
4: He talked about 30 women in the dark so they, they wouldn't recognize him without killing them. Uh, he, he strangled them. He uh, gripped into their hair, and then he went home and, and masturbated. That was for several years, well, more than two at least. and But uh, he said 30, maybe more, attacks against women like that in his hometown.
1: Eckert's spree was stopped once more in 1987. He attacked two women in Plauen and left them for dead. Both survived and were able to identify him to the police. One of those women, whose name has been changed to protect her identity, is Claudia, who was only 16 at the time.
3: I was on the way home from a party together with my friend.
8: on I took
3: her home first and wanted to walk the rest of the way by myself. As I continued to walk alone, I noticed after around 100 metres that somebody was following me. When I walked faster, the person behind me also walked faster, and when I slowed down, also he was slowing down. At that point, I already felt a bit threatened, so I grabbed my bunch of keys, hoping to be able to defend myself. Maybe I could hit him in the
8: face.
3: He suddenly came up behind me at a crossroads and pushed me to the ground. Then he put his hands around my neck and choked me. I then tried to defend myself, but he was stronger, heavier, more powerful. I had no chance. I tried to play dead in the hope that he would let go, but that didn't
8: work.
3: He knelt on top of my legs, so there was no chance for me to move anywhere. He was strangling me with his hands. I really struggled to describe it. This pain and the pressure, it was very brutal and incredibly violent. At that moment, I gave up my life. That was it. I knew it was over. I saw a tunnel with a white light at the end of it. It was really like that, a near-death experience.
1: Incredibly... Claudia survived and was able to give a detailed
3: description of her attacker to the police. To this day, I still can't forget his face.
1: At the time, Eckert had applied to leave communist East Germany and move to the West. But when a drawing of his face was distributed among the police, an officer recognized him. He was
3: immediately arrested before he could flee the country. The day of his court hearing arrived, when he was about to be convicted. He was sitting only a few meters away from me, and suddenly he apologized to me. For me, well, there can be no excuse for a crime like this. In 1988,
1: Eckert was sentenced to 12 years in prison for attempted murder. During his time behind bars, he underwent therapy for his sexual deviance. The treatment, in the eyes of the prison authorities, was a success.
6: The doctor or the psychologist who saw him was very certain that Volker Eckert could control his sexual urges from then on. And this was apparently supposed to have been ensured as he was supposed to undergo more therapy when he made it out of prison. But he didn't do it.
1: Eckert served just six years of his sentence. In 1994, he was released into the world yet again. And he went straight for the woman who had put him behind
3: bars. One night he was standing in front of my door. He rang the bell, wearing a boiler suit, one of these blue ones, and said, there is a burst pipe, you must let me in. I had a little peephole in the door, a tiny little hole where I could look through, and there I recognised him. I did not open the door, but I know it was him. He tried to find me. I don't want to know what he wanted to do with me. Now it's over, thank God, but he definitely wanted to attack again.
8: By
1: 1994, the Berlin Wall had fallen and Eckert was free to travel wherever he wanted.
3: I felt sorry for the women, because while he had been in prison, psychologists and other similar professionals would have actually realized that he was still a danger to society. But because of the reunification of Germany, he was released, and nobody seemed to care. Even though he was a tried murderer, he was let go without any sort of assessment. And the women could all still be alive if only someone had acted differently.
8: Anders reagiert
7: After he got out of prison, he was able to slip through the net of the authorities. He was able to uh, give them as much as they wanted, but not too much to uh, see that there's a dangerous person who is uh, still dangerous for the society, who is still running through life with this, uh, yeah, let's call it disease, with these criminal obsessions.
1: Eckert settled in the small town of Hof, where no one knew of his former crimes.
6: So he had landed on his feet in Hof and settled in well and was well liked. His landlady also said she had rarely encountered such a nice tenant.
1: By 1999, 40 year old Eckert had taken a job as a long distance truck driver, a profession that suited the killer perfectly.
5: It allows them to go off the radar for quite extended periods of time. They work unsupervised, they don't answer to anybody, and they have these long stretches of time to to ruminate and to to basically get lost in, in their own thoughts. So that creates an environment in which their fantasies start to become a reality. And then when they do offend, we often find that that they can dump the bodies of their victims in a completely different police jurisdiction to the one that they pick them up in. And that creates something called linkage blindness within the police who are investigating these crimes. They don't always connect them immediately.
1: Over the course of six years, Eckert ventured over country borders, killing freely in Spain, France, Germany, Italy, and the Czech Republic. Eckert would lure unsuspecting victims into his truck before strangling and then raping them. The bodies of these women were often found days after the attack, discarded in roadside ditches, naked. With no clues or leads on a culprit, police in each country were baffled as cases of these unsolved murders continued to grow. The fractured forces of Europe didn't consider that they were dealing with a nomadic serial killer On November 2nd, 2006, Eckert's murderous career was finally put to an end. Journalist Rainer Meyer and true crime author Jeffrey Wansel know the story
6: well. Volker Eckert's last victim was Milena Petrova near Osterich in Catalonia, North Spain. He picked her up there and abused her in his lorry. He spent another day driving around. And the morning after, he dumped her at a nearby stone
2: bridge. Somebody was erecting CCTV cameras, which hadn't been there before, and just to test them, it panned. One of the images it caught was Eckert's lorry. And when the body that he dumped nearby was found. Almost the first place the police went was to look at this entirely accidentally caught CCTV imagery, which led them directly to Eka.
1: A Europe-wide search was organized. It was the beginning of a huge international story. On November 17th, 2006, Detectives found Eckert and his truck at a car wash in Kuhn, Germany. Police raided his truck where they found a collection of disturbing photos and hair clippings.
2: They were his trophies, if you like, along with hair and various other things. They represented for him the reason. The body itself was disposable, but that memory and that lock of hair or locks of hair were his explanation to himself about why he was doing it. That was what he was there
6: for. He also made notes of the details of each crime on the back of these Polaroid pictures so that he could later remind himself of what had happened in each attack.
1: Local journalist Francois Bachel was following the story
9: at the time. What caught our attention straight away was the fact that the killer was a fetishist. In other words, this was someone who kept souvenirs of their crimes, who took things from their victims, including locks of hair, things like that, keeping things, souvenirs, fetishes, keeping them in a kind of, like some kind of treasure. He is the kind of character you don't find too often in European crime stories, and in this case, we were almost imagining a, a film
7: character.
5: He created a a little repository, essentially, and this is something that's quite common for for serial killers, and it it serves several functions for them. So it enables them to relive their crimes, to to revisit that that moment when they were all-powerful and and fully in control, but it also acts as a bit of a stimulus to to do it again. Um, So it really is a, a vicious circle when it comes to trophies.
1: After his arrest, Eckert immediately confessed to a murderous career that had lasted for more than 30 years in five countries. His defense lawyer, Alexander Schmidt remembers.
7: He confessed immediately after he got arrested by the police. You have this quite often when you have um, serial killers or when you have people who have a burden carried with them for a long time. It was like a relief for him to speak with someone and to to tell what he did. So it was like a confession uh, in a church for him.
1: Prosecutors sent Eckert to be analyzed by psychiatrist Professor Norbert Nadepeel.
4: He came from prison, guided by two policemen into my offices. And then he sat with me for for several hours alone without policemen and, and without any handcuffs. And we had a long and serious conversation, sometimes sad, sometimes um, for him or frightening events, sometimes also um, very... Nice and 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 personal and and even even sometimes we laughed together. In the end, he said, "Well, for several months I was very withdrawn in myself. Now I could even laugh and I was freer." He said, "I'm glad I talked to you." I, the three or four days that we were together, he said, I, it was, I slept better, I, I talked better, I, I was more relaxed than, than usual.
1: During these sessions, Professor Nadepeel was able to assess Eckert's psychological condition for the upcoming court case.
4: The actual conclusion is that he is psychiatrically a sadist, a sadism developed from fetishism, and this, in the legal sense, is a, a mental disorder. And uh, this mental disorder would lead to a diminished responsibility concerning the sexual acts, but not the killings that have been done to prevent detection. And that he would be a repeat offender, and if released, even after a prison sentence, would not stop it.
5: He was really preoccupied with what other people thought of him, and he was being portrayed in a way that he didn't think was fair. He's been committing these crimes for for over 30 years, and I think he's developed quite a grandiose sense of self. And when he's reduced to the label of a monster, he's really not happy about that at all.
7: He's speaking about uh, tremendous, horrible things and uh, details of of killing or actually sexually abusing other women, and uh, there was no like there was no fear there was no shivering there was no um, turning away of the eyes there was nothing like a reaction you would expect if, if if a normal person is telling this i was always asking how you felt um, when you killed the woman what what did you do the day after did you look in the newspaper did you think to the parents did you think to the family of the of the girls his, his emotions were missing. He spoke about himself like a monster who who's not able to control himself and that he has some defects. He knew
1: this. He ultimately confessed to taking the lives of six women. Even so, Eckert tried to detach himself from the murders.
7: He spoke about himself in a third person, like um, he's building a distance between the uh, Mr. Eckert, who is uh, committing the crimes and who is uh, really doing horrible things, and the person who is sitting here next to you and speaking with you. So I think this was the the way for him to to handle this, yeah, because if. To think that the, the uh, person who was committing the crime is someone else, because otherwise you cannot uh, you cannot live. Yeah, You cannot live with this, uh, knowing that uh, you are this monster.
1: Detectives believed that Eckert had likely committed more than six murders over the previous 32 years.
6: So the investigators are relatively sure that it was probably 13 cases in total, even though it's not possible to prove this 100%. And in a further six cases, there was at least the possibility that it was him, because he was driving in the area.
1: Eckert's movements as a long-distance truck driver were easy to track, using fuel receipts, GPS records, and details of where he had spent the night.
6: Investigators from the whole of Europe dug out their old cases and compared them with the movements of Eckert that the police in Bayreuth had mapped out and they tried to find crimes that had taken place when Volker Eckert was driving through this country.
7: country. A Scotland Yard came over to Germany to question. Then there was the French police as well, because every police um, knew there's a serial killer. So look at the cases where was a woman sexually abused, and maybe there this Mr. Eckert was nearby yeah, at the time she was uh, killed.
1: Investigating officers could link Eckert to the murder of three more sex workers between 2002 and 2004 based on his movements one in France, one in Italy, and one in the Czech Republic. He admitted to the killings of 21-year-old Sandra Osifo in 2001 and Agnieszka Boss in 2006. Both of these murders took place in France. François Barre could hardly believe the scale of the investigation.
9: We realized that we were dealing with someone who'd been traveling the roads of Europe for 10, 15 years, and that this person had possibly committed crimes, certainly in many European countries. A lot of journalists did the same as the police, namely, questioning the existence of case files of unsolved crimes that might match Volker Eckert's style of killing.
1: The trial was set to take place at a local courthouse in Hof. Local journalist Rainer Meyer says the story caught the public's attention.
7: Every
6: headline is good for a newspaper, and every spectacular story is good for a newspaper. And it isn't the newspaper's fault that it interests people. But everything that isn't normal stirs people. And if someone living in a community finds out that the nice uncle was not actually the nice uncle that everyone thought he was, but a perverse serial killer, then that stirs people too. And then they want to know as much as possible about it. And we are there for the purpose of delivering that information.
1: While waiting for his trial in custody, Eckert lost the support of the only family he had left.
7: I remember very well he was very uh, desperate that he had uh, completely lost the contact to his family because uh, his sister was always a very um, important um, point of uh, contact for him through his whole life and um, she didn't want to have contact with
6: him.
1: It all suddenly became too much for Eckert.
6: He was sitting inside his cell in the prison of Bayreuth and had a lot of time to think. On his 48th birthday, the 1st of July 2007, he knew that he would be officially charged with murder within the next few days. Nobody came to see him that day. His sister didn't visit and neither did his brother.
1: The following morning, his body was found hanging from the bars.
6: He was all alone, and during the night he brought justice to himself and hanged himself in the cell.
1: His death surprised those who got to know him better than most.
6: I talked to him
4: about suicide at several occasions, and he said several times, I'm a coward, I won't do it. Um, um, But I know that I have no chances. If you ask me how I feel about him, I
7: um, I cannot say I, I like him. But you're a human being, and you are in contact with this man. I never see him killing someone. I only read this. But you have contact. You see him twice, three times a week, and you you see how he's reacting, and you you feel how all the the court, all the authority of the state um, is is against him. How the press is calling him. Uh, a monster, a murderer in this way, he doesn't deserve this treatment also in the public. And um, he deserves for sure uh, a fair trial and um, to defend him as best as as you can. And and I felt sad when I heard that he uh, killed himself because you develop a relationship also with your clients in in prison, especially when you take over the case for such a long time, you develop a relationship. And and he ended this in a way that, yeah, like he ended other lives, he ended his own life himself.
1: Claudia, who survived a brutal attack by Eckert in 1987,
8: had been planning to attend his trial.
3: When I got a call from a journalist telling me that Volker Eckert had killed himself, my first thought was, coward a coward who is dodging responsibility for the gruesome acts he committed. After a considerable amount of time, I was then running out of accusations. I had come to terms with the situation and was even glad that he had killed himself because this gruesome human could no longer hurt anyone.
1: Eckert's death meant he would escape justice. There were still so many questions left unanswered about his crimes.
9: I had a feeling of frustration above all. I knew that Volker Eckert's death meant the end of any investigations that could have been reopened on the old case files that no one was interested in anymore and which had only reappeared in police and media news. In the end, these mysteries would never be solved. And that is what's truly shocking about the death of Volker Eckert, that those victims will never be granted justice.
1: In December 2007, five months after his death, police closed the file on Volker Eckert. The Europe-wide investigation was over.
6: He could remember many of his crimes very well and indeed very precisely. Surely that would have been a massively exciting trial for the press and of course also for the readers who would have wanted to keep up with the news. The trial would have taken months with enormous coverage from international media because the crimes had been committed across half of Europe.
1: To this day... There are no official records of precisely how many women survived or died after Eckert's attacks. It may never be known.
7: I'm quite sure that uh, there was no gap of time where he didn't do anything. So, Because he always spoke about himself as someone who is not able to control the desire and the, his obsession, so if you ask my personal opinion, I think there's a high percentage that he did more than uh, he's, he admitted to, yes.
6: What, uh, the there would always be the question whether six dead women, or whether 13, or even 19, or even more. He has taken this mystery with him forever. There have been estimates of 22 across Europe France,
2: Czechoslovakia, Germany, Spain. He was relentless and he was successful in evading the Attentions of the police for a very considerable period of
3: time. There will always be a part of me that will probably never forget. I can't imagine it. I experienced it, I know what I had to go through.
1: What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Creggi and Kai Engel. Recorded by Mila Corbett Windham at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors, friends, and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. This has been What Makes a Killer, Season 1. All episodes can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Season two will debut later this year. Thank you for listening.